Father in heaven, I thank you for your word, that it is truth, and by it uh, you reveal yourself and you reveal your salvation. And Lord, we also thank you for your spirit who opens our eyes and who makes us, makes our eyes to see and trust in and, and treasure the gospel. And so Lord, I pray that as your word is proclaimed now, as it is heralded, as it is announced and preached, Lord, I pray that you would create faith in us with your word and that you would shape us as would please you. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Now, we've been taking a, a deep dive into understanding that humanity was made in the image of God. And how that helps us to know and, and how that helps us to know and delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It helps us to understand the terrifying and catastrophic fall into sin of humanity. It helps shine light on the glorious way that the Lord Jesus Christ redeems not just the church, but how he redeems the whole of the universe through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, his reign from heaven now, and his return to reign on earth, to judge the living and the dead. So understanding that we are made in the image of God helps, that helps us to understand all of those things and the glorious significance of the creation of God, of, of, that, of, God's, of God's creation of humanity and his redemption of humanity. So brothers and sisters, unbelieving guests, you were made for God's glory. That is why you were created. You were made for his glory and you're made in his image to know him and reflect his glory, to enjoy him and represent him on the earth, to rule the earth on his behalf. He assigned us and he designed us to glorify him and enjoy him according to his character and his holiness. It is his character that he wants to be known through our creation specifically in our creation in his image. But we've fallen into sin, and we are now under the curse of sin, and we face the wrath of God for our rebellion. But the Son of God, he took on a human nature. He became a man to fulfill the calling that humanity failed to do, and he did it on behalf of his church, on behalf of his bride, his body, which he is the head of, and to die for her sins that she committed, while bearing the image of God, and then to rise to new life and raise her to newness of life, renewed into his image-bearing rather than Adam's image-bearing of God. And so the offer of the gospel, the good news, which we are trusting Christ's death and resurrection for, is yes, that he paid for our sins but also that he restores us to live as we were created, to glorify him as his image bearers with the identities which he has given us and to glorify him in those identities. Not in order to secure God's love for us. That's not why we now live according to the image of God that he created us in, but because he has saved us to walk in that Glory, that restored glory. And so today we're going to be looking at the features of God's design for humanity. 
We're looking at gender. We're looking at male and female and to see how this was part of God's good design for creation, part of his good plan for us as humanity to know him and to glorify him. A design which Christ restores in our hearts to glorify God by embracing this design and identity. So our first point is this. God designed humanity in two halves in order to glorify and enjoy him in a way that is very good. So in Genesis 1, we hear God say these words. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And up until that point, at the end of every day, God had been saying, it is good. But not until God had created both male and female did he say that creation was very good. Until there was male and female image bearers of God, men and women, there was something incomplete, something that was not right. And Genesis 2 gives us more details of the why and glory and beauty of male and female. And so, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 18. Genesis 2, verse 18. We'll read to 25. Then God, sorry, then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every, burst, every, burst, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I want you to see that God is not needing a break after creating Adam, before he created Eve. It's not like that was so hard, now he needs to take a break. But he did essentially take a break. There was a pause. There was events that happened between the, the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve. He's doing this. He's creating this event. He sets up this event where, animal, where, where Adam lines up the animals. He, he names them. He's setting this up to show Adam and then all of Adam's descendants. He's showing them something very critical. He's showing them that humanity is incomplete. The image of God in humanity was incomplete without both man and woman. And God created humanity into halves. While there was just one, incomplete, it is not good. But now with two, male and female, then he says it is very good. Neither groups of males or females 
are able to fully and properly know and glorify God without the other group. God made two complementary genders, and he bestowed on them distinguishing gifts and characteristics that would make them uniquely able to image God. The image of God in humanity would be incomplete. It would be insufficient without the creation of both man and the creation of woman. Now, it would be helpful at this moment to clear up what we don't mean by this, that a a woman is not fully human without a husband, or a man is not fully human without a wife. No, what we, what we see here is that humankind, the race of Adam, is complete only with male and female, each gender relying on the other gender, which means that they would have weaknesses built into them in order to need God's gift of the other gender. See, God did not create Adam and Eve without needs. He did create them with needs. He just provided for those needs. So they could never say to the other gender, I have no need of you. God states this with his thundering voice before we ever get a chance to figure it out or to create our own theory about the matter. He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will create a helper fit for him. Neither is it good that the woman should be alone. So God designed them unique and equal and distinct. He divested his good gifts and characteristics. He divested them into two genders rather than just one. Now, that's not to say that they are fundamentally different. They are actually fundamentally human, fundamentally image bearers. They have more in common than they do not. But it was God's good design for men to bear God's image in their glorious calling as men and for women to bear God's image in their glorious calling as women. So that brings us to point, the first sub-point of our first point, which is God is our leader and our defender. God is our leader and defender. God created men. They're no accident. When we see these strange creatures walking around like men, this is no accident. God did that. He designed them anatomically different. Different body shape and body parts from a woman. But this is not all that there is to being uniquely a man. There are characteristics and callings which are unique to being a man. There's good conversation about all that that entails. But it's most wise to focus on the discussion on what God has certainly said in Scripture so that we don't go off into speculation and speak where God has not spoken. And then once that that is established, then we can consider other matters and conclusions that we necessarily have to draw based on what Scripture has said. And so we are going to focus our attention on the callings which Scripture has most clearly expressed that God has assigned and how God has designed men. And Scripture most clearly exhibits this in the design of the church and also of the household. Design of the church and also of the household. So the husband, says God's word, is the head of the wife. Ephesians 5, 23 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So there's a responsibility to, to lead. And here in the marriage and in the family, it's a, res- a responsibility assigned to men. We see this design will also extend into the family of God, the church. We see in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. This is part of God's good design. First, we can look at the idea of leader. So there is an outward quality, a direction, a, a goal, which is then required of the husband or here, the elders of a church, you could say. This is assigned to them, this direction. That is the accomplishment of the mandate that God has given to the church and the family. So men are responsible then to lead their families in holiness, in righteousness. Not only responsible that their families are alive and well, but that they are holy and that they're facing toward the world to bless it. There's a direction to the family. It doesn't just exist for the purpose of existing. That family has a a purpose and a direction. It has a mandate and a calling by God to to do things for his glory. That that family has a mission. So there's that outward-facing direction of that family. So we recall the mandate given to Adam and Eve. Not just to live. Not just to obey God and not break his commandments, but the mandate was to subdue the earth, to rule it, to use the earth for the glory of God, to expand God's glory, to be a blessing. And so there's this outward-facing direction of the leadership of a husband and a father. Essentially, he's saying, let's glorify the Lord together. Let's be a blessing. And here's how we're going to do that. Here's how we're going to shape ourselves and point ourselves to the world. Here's how we, as our family, are going to do that, to fulfill God's mandate for us. There's that leadership built into the role of a a father and a husband. We see in Psalm 31.3 that this is a way to glorify. This is one of the ways in which we, in a peculiar way, Glorify God as men. Psalm 31 verse 3 says, For you are my rock, this is talking about the Lord, for you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake you lead me and guide me. This is a responsibility which God has assigned to men, specifically here, most clearly in the church and the family, and it's a quality that is part of his character and his attributes. God is our leader. This ruling and leading quality and responsibility is how men are required to image God. Not only that, we see this defender. God is our defender, and we see that there's a peculiar quality about men where they are to focus, and they're set aside for this in the church and the family specifically. God has designed men with strength generally greater than women. This shouldn't be controversial. 1 Peter 3, verse 7 says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The greater strength which men generally possess is no accident, but it is given from the Lord. He's not worried about offending us by stating the obvious. 
This was a design feature, not an accident of Darwinian pointless evolution. This was given to men in service of their responsibility to be defenders, to glorify and image God by being defenders, because God is our defender. We see this in Psalm 118, 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. He fights for his people. He defends them with his strength. So to glorify God, to imitate him, men, as they show honor to women by restraining their strength toward women and using it for the protection and good of the people whom God has given them to. God designed men with needs. He also designed women with needs. God has given men generally extra strength as a way for men to glorify him, to imitate him in the care and defense of a a beloved who is weaker than him. It's not only a physical ability I want you to see, but it's an inner constitution to be able to fulfill that particular calling. It's not just anatomy. Of course, this is generally true, but it's not always true. Some wives are stronger than their husbands. Some girls are faster than boys. This doesn't mean that women are not to use strength. It doesn't mean that women are not to defend others or even to lead others. But on the whole, mankind, as a, as a half of humanity, is stronger than womankind as a half of humanity. And it's not merely anatomical. It's not merely bigger muscles and skeletal systems. God has prepared men, even internally, to fulfill the roles that he has designed them for as his image bearers. And women cannot say, and society cannot say, that it has no need for men as men. Second sub-point of our first point. (laughs) God is our helper and our nurturer. God is our helper and our nurturer. It's not good for the man to be alone, says God. Without the woman, he won't be able to fulfill the mandate to fill and rule over creation for the glory of God. Both men and women are the image bearers of God, as we've seen, and they are complementary image bearers, which means that we'd expect that their design, their sameness, and their differences would better expose the goodness and glory of the creator in whose image they were made, that there were certain characteristics about God that they would be just very weak in, 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 in glorifying him for were it not for the other gender. It's true, as we have read in First Peter, that God did create women as equal image bearers of God with the same glory, but that he created men to be generally the stronger vessel of that same bright glory. What is also true is that God has designed women in ways deeper than merely anatomy, but which includes anatomy, with a unique, with a unique glory to glorify him in ways which men would, A, simply just not be able to do at all, and B, just not do well without women. 
So first I want to turn your eyes to this idea of the nurturer. First and most obvious way which God created women differently is their ability to conceive and bear children. To nurture the tiniest and most vulnerable life within their bodies. Women, not men, bear children. At once, sorry, and once they are born, the Lord has designed them physically to be able to nurture and sustain the lives of their little children. To feed them and nurture them. This goes well beyond anatomy. This is how God has designed women in a way that they are better at this than men are. It's an inner constitution. It is an insult to say, that, to say to women that there is no difference, that there is no advantage to being a woman in relation to nurturing the youngest of lives. Again, the advantage is not merely anatomical. It is a glorious gift, this advantage. This is a gift which the Lord God intentionally designed humanity to need and respect and honor the other gender. There are aspects of God's character that humanity would lack just too much. We'd lack way too much in order, uh, without the contribution of women in how God has designed them. One of those is that God is a nurturer of his people. God is not only a leader, not only a strong defender, he's also a comforter and a nurturer. A nurturer, sorry. Things which God has given women on the whole the greater gift of. Now, God has never called a woman. He's not ever called a mother. He didn't reveal himself as a mother or he didn't incarnate as a woman. And idolatry involves us worshiping God in ways that he has not given or commanded us. Idolatry is picking and choosing how we describe God. And so we honor the Lord by addressing him as he has revealed and commanded us to. But that says nothing, however, of a lesser dignity to, to women. Though God is not our mother, there are times in his word where the best way to describe the results of his nurturing of his people is to speak of how a baby feels after being comforted by its mom. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So too would the Apostle Paul be lost for words to describe the appropriate affection for the church. If there were no mothers or no women to be found on the earth, he would be lost without a beautiful image and description and parable. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. That women are generally better at showing affection and nurturing is no accident. Neither is it something that was trained into us by social pressure. It is the gift and honor given to them by the Lord God. 
that there are aspects of God's character that they are generally better at, at showing. Not only is God a nurturer, he's also our helper. Now we saw that God called men and designed them to lead and defend, particularly in the family and in the church. There's this outward looking, this facing a direction, this goal, this follow after me kind of a quality in pursuing holiness and the glory of God. And in the creation of Eve, the Lord was creating a helper, he said, for Adam. And I'd be sure there's, she was more than that, but she's not less than that. And to be the helper of humanity of Adam is actually a way in which she imitates God. Because God is a helper of Adam as well. Now, God does give us a mission. He gives us a mandate, but he also helps us fulfill that mandate. He provides and supports, and it is his delight to do so. It's an action of God himself to help somebody in a mandate that he has given them. It is therefore a glorious, honorable, and godly thing to do to be a helper. And so you see here, that's this inward-facing direction in design and gifting and callings. In, in Titus 2, that's going to affirm this for wives, not, not being restricted to the household, but having a peculiar, a special focus on the nurturing and care of the family that God gives them while pursuing the mission, the direction, which is outward focus, there is a need to have a special focus and attention on the nurturing of the family. It's a wonderful gift to a family and also a wonderful gift to humanity. God is not ashamed of creating humanity with this complementary design of needs and strengths for the other gender. I want to give a warning here about extremes Okay. We must not go to extremes or, or permit society to push us in those directions because men are called and required to be compassionate and nurturing as they lead a family. There sure is forward facing. There is facing the, the goal of the family, follow after me as I go. But there's also to be a measure of inward turning. It's not, it's not just turned outward. There's an inward turning of the husband, of a godly husband. And a godly husband is going to be helped by a godly wife in order to know how to do this well. So the image of the harsh father or husband who cares only about the mission and behavior and safety and not about the comforting and nurturing of his family is just not squareable with the Bible. You can't find that guy in Scripture applauded he'd be condemned. Neither is it biblical to suggest that a woman is only to be interested in the nurturing of her family. See, what we're talking here about is unique design, gifting, and focused callings. Now, rather than what we are permitted to do, a restriction, this is more about what we are required to focus on, to pay special attention to. It's not really even about defining women's work or men's work. That would be an extreme, speaking where Scripture has not spoken. But we do need to honor and recognize the dignity and distinction in calling and design which Scripture 
does teach. Women can exercise leadership gifts along with the nurturing. And men can exercise nurturing and helping gifts while being called to lead their families. Often gender confusion is caused by a society that actually caricatures or tries to define male and female based on extremes or arbitrary standards, which are just not natural and which are not found in Scripture. The church can't join the world in this confusion, and it can't, com- it can't combat that confusion by making the same mistake in an opposite direction. That would make the problem worse, not better. Now, there are going to be challenges for men and women which are caused either by sin or by the fact that we just live in a fallen world that's stained by sin. There are some women who would love to be mothers, but are some, is simply just unable to be. Because of some physical reason, they are unable to conceive and bear children or some other reason. But remember, O oh church, Remember the foundations that were laid early in this series. Ability and capacity does not determine identity. That's not how it works. God didn't give us our identity based on our abilities. It was the other way around. It's God who gives us our identity. So it doesn't make a woman less of a woman, and it is wicked to suggest it. But it is also wicked to suggest that this proves that being a woman is not knit together with what it means to be a mom. And so too with men who would desire to be fathers or husbands or who are physically unable to defend their families but they would just love to be able to. Perhaps they're actually mentally unable to lead. Oh church, remember the foundations that were laid in the word of God. It doesn't change the identity which God has given and the the glory and dignity that he has given. An old man in a wheelchair with dementia is not able, as he once was, to offer protection and defense of a family or a church, but that man is still a whole man in God's sight. And God demands you honor him as a man. And that woman is still a whole woman in God's sight And God demands you honor her as a woman. And because we believe these differences are not merely anatomical, having disabilities or or the ability not to conceive or, or to lead or any of these things, because we believe that there's an inner quality that God gives that makes a woman a woman and an inner quality that makes a man a man, we see that you can still live out your calling even in a world that has been stained by sin. And we feel the curse of Adam in our bodies. And so, brothers and sisters, the Lord is compassionate to us in our weaknesses, and he, and this is why he gives us his word and his spirit. The reason why he has sent his son to die for our sins and to forgive them for all the ways that we've turned against his design. And then to remake us according to the original glorious design for us, that men and women glorify God as his image bearers. He calls us to repent. And then his word tells us what it means to be a woman and what it 
means to be a man. And then his spirit helps us to live according to it. To submit our desires and emotions and our actions so that even our desires and emotions would conform to his glorious design. How he is designed for us to glorify him. The glory he wants us to give him. The glory he created us specifically to give him. Those things about himself which he has designed for us to demonstrate and magnify. And so that takes us to our second point, which is Christ renews men and women. And brothers and sisters, when we, re- when we renew our understanding of the point of life, the point of humanity, and the point of creation, we realize that God's design fits the glory which he desires to be shown about himself. This is about showing who God is, and he has created us for that purpose, and he's designed it with no accidents involved. How does he want himself to be known? All creation, humanity, men and women, marriages, husbands and wives, the church, all for the same purpose. And next week we're going to look how this, is, this peculiar glory is expressed in marriage and also in the church. Today we're going to look at how it is expressed in terms of humanity as a whole and how God has created humanity. He has himself designed it. He has arranged it as he has seen fit. He has arranged the parts of humanity, male and female. He's arranged those parts according to his own desires and glory. And the the truth that God has designed the body, including but not limited to anatomy, is actually necessary for so many passages in the Bible to actually have any meaning. If you ignore that, then it robs so many passages of any meaning whatsoever. And so, for example, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want, I want to see if this makes any sense, if we don't first agree that God actually has intentionally designed humanity, he's inti- intentionally designed our right, right down to the bodies of humanity. And so we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 to 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, just body parts there, as many members, so all the members of the body Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and, or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would, ma- that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there were many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and, those, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another." 
If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see how this passage makes no sense without the, the, uh, the actual parable, the actual body being something that we understand that God himself has designed, and he's designed it with purpose. And also, humanity is something that God himself has designed. There's a design, each with a peculiar part and role to play. God could have made all parts of humanity, in this case, the two parts, men and women. He could have made them identical, but he chose not to in his wisdom. His glory and love and character would not be known and shown sufficiently. There would be something lacking. But then he has arranged those different parts to ensure that they are all given dignity and that the peculiar glory that he's designed them for would be shown and known and it wouldn't be disrespected or felt unnecessary or of a lesser value. Not only has God in his wisdom created humanity into halves, he himself has arranged those image bearers into those two halves. By his own design and purpose, he has chosen which of those are men and which of those are women. He has given each of us the bodies which he has determined we needed in order to fulfill his calling to us to glorify him as a man or to glorify him as a woman. As we'll see in, in the church in marriage, in our next sermon, there are commands which require us to recognize God as the one who chooses a person's gender and that we are expected to align ourselves with God's design rather than with our thoughts or desires. Not only do both the New and Old Testaments forbid a man from treating another man as his wife, saying essentially that a woman is a good substitute for a man. She's not. But also presenting yourself as a woman, if you are a man, is also prohibited. And so is presenting yourself as a man if you are a woman. We see this in Deuteronomy 22, 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, the application of this command is going to be different from culture to culture and from generation to generation. But the heart, the spirit behind it is not confusing. It's plain. Embrace the identity which the Lord has given to you based on the anatomy that he has given to you in the way he has arranged the parts of the body. So this forbids transgenderism of, of any kind. If transgenderism was a Christian option, this command would make no sense. We bear the image of God in the way that he has called us to. So the question of which one you would prefer is an insult to both genders. Because God values each gender so highly, he forbids these choices based on preference. This isn't a schoolyard choice in, in terms of two, uh, teams, uh, the one which is deemed less advantageous or less fulfilling. is just not chosen. Could you imagine if society itself chose that for each person? Well, you know, the things that you value most, you're gonna, the gender you value most, you're going to assign to the people who you think are most valuable. And the, the things that you value least about people, that you're going to assign that to the gender you value least. No. God chooses. 
to remove that idea of preference so that neither gender can be dishonored. He wants men and he wants women. So God has created you and called you to glorify him in your calling as a woman or as a man. And then to present yourself in such a way. Rather than saying, no, no, I, I want to glorify God in that other gender, you accept the calling from God and accept that his choice is wiser than yours and you are the clay and he is the potter. So you're responsible to present yourself in such a way to other people, to not confuse other people. And it is, it is sinful to ask people or trick people into treating you as a man if you are a woman or as a, a woman if you are a man. Now remember, we've seen that the image of God is defaced but not erased. And so we would expect as believers in the, in, in the Bible and who take the, the fall of sin very seriously, we would, we would expect to see brokenness in bodies and brokenness in, in minds and mental health and, and we would have compassion as we understand that we are no longer living in the garden. So deformities such as being born with unclear anatomy, these things exist because of the fall. And wisdom is required to know whether this dear child is to glorify God as a man or as a woman. Not only this, there is gender confusion. There certainly is gender dysphoria, as it is sometimes called, and that is a mental health issue. And one, which, knowing the significance of the fall into sin, how damaging sin has had effect on, on our bodies and minds, it, it wouldn't surprise us that there are that just as there are people who suffer from thoughts that do not line up with reality, this would also have such an effect. And so one of the questions that we started when we began this series is how to honor, how to treat a person with dignity. If we are saved to do good works, not by good works, but to do good works, the question is what is it? How do we honor and glorify God in how we treat people? How do we treat someone with dignity? So what does living, loving dignity mean to someone when we're talking about image bearers? Well, it means compassion and grace. It means tenderness. But dignity always means that we treat someone according to the identity and glory which God has assigned them. We would not know what love and dignity were apart from God. We submit to God's design. We delight in it. And we embrace the identities which he has given to us and the identities that he has given to others. Now, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is often a battle between the identities that we feel, those things that the society says about us, and those things which God declares about us in his word. Paul will often point to our baptisms and say, you once were that people. And you might still feel like that, but you were washed so we turn to Christ for our identity rather than for our feelings. Christ is worthy and his word is sure and our feelings are certainly not. That brings us to our last point to sort of summarize up, which is the mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Next week we're gonna dive more into how this looks in, the, in a marriage and, and in a church, but to understand male and female, 
and the purpose for God's creation of humanity in these complementary halves, we need to understand that this was for the purpose of demonstrating not only his character, but also to provide characters in a living parable of the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. In, in Mark 10, Christ merges Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he says the reason that marriage is a permanent bond between a man and a woman is because God created them male and female in his image. For this reason, he says, this is why I created these two genders, and this is why marriage needs to be a one man and a one woman, and forever. God, Paul reveals even more of the purpose of this mystery. Ephesians chapter 5, 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, now quoting Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Then he finishes, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so we see that the purpose of God creating two genders, both in his image his creation of marriage between a man and a woman, they were all in service of glorifying the gospel of Christ to help us understand it, to give us categories to understand the love of Christ for his bride, the church. Christ the husband and the church the bride. One flesh. The two become one. They share life. His record becomes hers. Her record becomes his. She was created for him. He took on flesh to be her husband. Church, there's nothing more glorious than knowing and delighting in that beautiful gospel. And so our honoring of men as men and women as women in the identity that God has given them and treating that identity as an honor, that's necessary for our understanding and treasuring of the gospel. Because a person who believes that being a biblical woman or a wife is not a glorious dignity will also not find the church's relationship with Christ to be glorious and dignified. And a person who believes that being a biblical man or a biblical husband is not a glorious dignity will also not find Christ's relationship to the church glorious. Oh, but church, there's nothing more glorious than Christ and his bride. Nothing more glorious than Christ and his beloved, redeemed, restored, and glorified church. He paid for our sins. He raises us to new life. Restored to know and glorify and enjoy him in the image and identity which he gave us when we were created. And even more so in the identity which he gives us when we are redeemed. So let us look to Christ and be conformed to his image and glorify him for his glorious gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we would only know the truth were if it were for you telling us. And Lord, we confess that you have created us in a way that is very good. Lord, that it is very good to be a man. It is very good to be a woman. Lord, both image bearers of you and Lord, we have fallen into sin and we have rejected the calling that you have given us and have chosen other dignities and other glories that we would rather live for. And so, Lord, we are grateful that you sent Christ to die for our sins, to die for his bride, the church. And we're grateful that we become part of the church 
by faith in his work. And we're grateful also that his work of redemption is not merely just that we are forgiven and yet continue on in confusion, but Lord, that we are now forgiven and then restored to glorifying you as you designed us to. So Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace and strength by the Spirit's power to live for your glory and the glory of the gospel in the way that you've called us to. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.